Roxy, are you still nursing your vulnerability hangover? Mm, I think I've finally recovered, but I feel like we should take a break from the vulnerable episodes for a bit. Yeah, I'm feeling some post-episode cringe myself. Like, when you remember that bad joke you told at the party the night before. Mm, Maybe we should do like a dry January, but for emotional honesty. Our livers and our therapists would probably thank us. From Religion News Service, this is Safe by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women making our way in a city with more than 2,000 bars, but less than 800 therapists. <laughs> I'm Roxy Stone. And I'm Caitlin Beatty. Roxy, I appreciate that our podcast can go from pretty silly to pretty serious very quickly. I feel like that's basically our friendship in general. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like when we went to Disney World and we're like coming down Splash Mountain and having all the fun. Woo! And then later that night we were like crying over drinks talking about my divorce. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's what Splash Mountain will do to you. I do have good pictures from Splash Mountain. Yes, we paid for this photo. (laughs) Your face. (laughs) I mean, that's why you buy those photos is the face. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Or on another trip to Orlando with our friend Polly, the three of us were in Orlando. We went out dancing. And then apparently I had a seizure that night. You did. And basically shortly after woke up to all these burly EMTs showing up in your living room, which didn't help the anxiety. So fun times. No, that was scary. We had been like at the beach all day. It had been hot. I'm sure you were really dehydrated. And then we like went dancing late into the night. And And I don't remember drinking that much. No, I think it was just like a normal, like a normal night of, it was really fun. But, you know, that heat is something else in the humidity. It was definitely dehydration. And I just feel bad for you and Holly because I have no recollection of like getting up out of bed, of falling over. I just, it was one of those moments where you wake up and you have no idea where you are. It was like my brain like went offline. I mean, it was the first time I got to visit the ER in Orlando. So thank you. And we were supposed to go to Harry Potter World yes, that that's day. Right. And instead, we, I'm pretty sure we just sat at home and read and talked about the Enneagram. We did. We had hours of Enneagram conversations <laughs> that day. But we went to Harry Potter World the next day. We did. We, we got we, the butter beer. I don't know. I feel like our listeners appreciate our game for the super serious and the super silly and everything in between. Well, on this episode, which you can probably tell if you're listening from the title, we are veering serious again. But we're grateful to go there today with Diane Langberg, a foremost expert on power, abuse, and creating a healthier church when it's facing a reckoning on multiple fronts. So what are we talking about when we're talking about spiritual abuse? Because I think that the mind immediately goes to like sexual abuse or sexual harassment, but it's obviously a much wider and broader conversation than that. Mm -hmm. Like there's many forms of spiritual abuse that don't always involve sexual abuse or sexual harassment. Yes. And on this point, we're going to get to a definition of terms, but first I want to say, I think it's really important to name spiritual abuse as not just church hurt. (laughs) There has been a conversation, a kind of a counter conversation 
among Christians or church leaders to kind of listen to other people's experiences and stories and say, well, yes, what happened to you? It sounds like you really struggle with that, but we're not going to call it abuse because, wow, abuse is a really big, bad word. Mm -hmm. And when you say abuse, I do think of sexual abuse or the Catholic Church's abuse scandal, and we're not that. Right. Of course, abuse occurs on a spectrum, but spiritual abuse is really abuse. It's not just you had a painful, like you disagreed with your pastor. Right. It's not just like, oh, you had conflict or some bad relationships. Well, yeah. I mean, that is also a real barrier to talking about and addressing spiritual abuse is that it is considered gossip. So often. Yeah. You're just you're just being divisive. You're trying to set the church against each other and cause division. And of course, and, and so often it's women having these conversations, right? And gossip is such an easy and quick and old, old tool to use. Oh, it's to a gendered term. Women. I think so. I think it I think it often is. Oh yeah. Oh, I have literally never thought about that before. Yeah. It's the gossiping church ladies, you know? Whoa. Okay. I'm going to put a pin in that because that's fascinating, but (laughs) we are in store for a definition of terms. And I'm taking this from a book that came out several years ago called Escaping the Maze of Spiritual Abuse by Lisa Oakley and Justin Humphreys, who are both scholars based in the UK. This is a book that I found really helpful in writing Celebrities for Jesus and Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger reference it in their book, A Church Called Tove. Mm -hmm. They define spiritual abuse as a form of emotional and psychological abuse that is characterized by a systematic pattern of coercive and controlling behavior in a religious context. So essentially, it's using religious tools to gain power and control over other people. Yes. I think spiritual abuse is fundamentally about control, about controlling other people in an undue, unhealthy, harmful way. I'm just wondering why control is such a temptation of power within churches. Like, why is it? Because I think you're right. And cults and religious, you know, these religious dynamics that go well beyond just churches, I think. But in, in often in any kind of religion context, like why is control mm. the tool? I mean, I have armchair theories. That's I think. what I'm asking for. I like your armchair theories. <laughs> I appreciate them. <laughs> you and like four people on Twitter. Um, I think in a lot of these cases, the leaders who do end up being spiritually abusive want coherence and order in their community. Mm-hmm. And so if we can get everybody on the same page about what to believe, how to behave, how to read the Bible, how to worship, how to raise your kids, there's something ordered and structured about that. If like if we allow people to kind of come to their own conclusions about really big things, then we have moral or spiritual chaos mm. or disorder or contradictions. And so we all need to be all on the same page about everything. It's a very, I would say, childish (laughs) black and white view of the world, you know, Right. like, but I think for a lot of people, that is what religious community offers is this is a community where I learn what to believe, how to act, what to think, to be right and good, right? to be a good person, to be a good Christian. And my leaders are going to tell me how to do that. And that feels good. That feels safe. That feels like ordered. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I think about that a lot in this context because it does so often feel that 
that even the people who are sort of defending the spiritual abuse, it's generally out of a fear of the community getting disrupted, you know, and everything kind of going off the rails. And it's like, well, no, we can't, you know, we can't say anything against our leader because that would mean maybe all these other things that he said are Mm -hmm. wrong, or that would mean that maybe our church would cease to exist um, because Mm -hmm. this charismatic leader built it. I mean, I think there's all kinds of things wrapped up in that. And so that sense of control, I think, even goes, you know, beyond the actual perpetrator of abuse, but also to his enablers. Right. People don't want to give up a church that has benefited them in real ways. I was reading some reporting today from Brian Houston's trial that's happening in Australia right now as we speak. The man who's accusing who accused Brian Houston's father of sexual abuse when he was a young boy, he said when he told his mother that Frank Houston had been molesting him for several years, she went, his words, dead silent. And she ultimately responded by saying she didn't want to be responsible for turning in this man of the church because it would be like a mortal sin. Wow. And I think that it, it just like it's, it comes to me now as we're like talking about this, the, the fear that, I mean, this was a mother finding out her son had been abused, but she was too afraid of like God, you know, and being punished to turn in, to, to accuse a man of God of doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If the potential consequence for addressing abuse is eternal separation from God, that's a really right. high bargain that a lot yeah. of people just are not going to take. And I think even when maybe there isn't that specific language around it, there's like, I was thinking about this, but also like Mars Hill, like that, this language around, well, they're doing so much good in the world that this is like almost a worthwhile sacrifice for that good. Mm -hmm. Like we don't want to take away all the good things that this person is doing and bring them down because of this one thing that maybe, maybe it's not that big a deal, you know? Yeah. I mean, I would describe... Everything that I've read and heard about Mark Driscoll's leadership style, I would describe as spiritually abusive for Mm -hmm. the way that he would use biblical texts, divine sanction, really hyperactive notions of authority and submission to church leaders to essentially bully people in the church. Mm -hmm. I would describe as spiritual abuse. I think many people who were at that church would later describe it as abuse. But when it's happening... It can be really hard to see that that's what ha- what's happening because it's coming in the midst of growth and mm-hmm. all these people are hearing the gospel and the church is growing and our budget is growing and we're doing all these exciting things. And like, surely that means that in the end, God is blessing us. And so, yeah, Mark is immature in certain regards or like he has, I don't know, growth opportunities, <laughs> <laughs> but we would never call it abuse because we understand that abuse ought to be disqualifying or right. If we really named it for what it was, it would disrupt everything that we're doing. Yeah. And I think there's just, gosh, I I think this is culture wide that there's just an, maybe a tacit acceptance and agreement among all of us that, Oh, if you're in a position of power, like maybe you're kind of a jerk or Mm. maybe you're kind of a bully or maybe you just, you know, you're like a little bit of a narcissist because how else could you get there? And, but (laughs) but that's just what it takes to be in those positions. And we're, you know, like we kind of let it slide in a way because we say like, that's just the name of the game to be in a position of leadership. Mm -hmm. And that's what it takes. 
And the rest of us kind of like try to soften that and make Mm -hmm. it good. But that's just the reality of being on top. Yeah. And it strikes me that's a very male Mm -hmm. (laughs) and very American leadership style. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the the evil genius Mm -hmm. or, you know, the the jerk who's also really brilliant. The Steve Jobs effect. (laughs) Which I'm saying is male because... I think women are hold are held to completely different standards when it comes yeah. to interpersonal dynamics. Yeah, and if you act that way as a woman, like you don't really get that benefit of the doubt. Like you're, there are a lot of words used for women that act that way in leadership <laughs> that I won't say here. Bleep, bleep, and bleepity bleep. bleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think about something Andy Crouch has said about power. Um, which is that, you know, it's actually not given to benefit the person who holds it, but it's for the flourishing of sort of the people that that person is leading, the flourishing of individuals, peoples, and in an Andy Crouch way of saying it, the cosmos itself. <laughs> yes. Andy writes about the cosmos a lot, but... And flourishing. And flourishing. But yeah, I mean, to be honest, Andy is one of the few Christian writers I'm aware of who's writing very deeply about power. I think what's really helpful about his writing is that like power itself is not the problem. We all have right. power. Power is a given in in the world, in human institutions, among communities. But the mark of power stewarded rightly is are other people actually empowered when I exercise my power or are they diminished in some way? And I think going back to dynamics of control, we are all given a rational mind, intuition, gifts, discernment, an ability to relate to God on our own. And I don't mean that to sound individualistic, but as a good Protestant, like I don't believe that we have to access God through a priest, (laughs) you know? So there's something about religious abuse that stifles someone's own sense of goodness, of capacity, of ability to discern what's right and wrong, and just a, a pervasive sense of like, I can't trust myself. I have to silence or cut off part of myself in order to fit into this religious system where someone is exercising control over me. I have, I, I'm trusting them more than I'm trusting myself. And they are benefiting from that. They That's what they want. I hate that these things keep like hitting kind of close to home. Um, like there's a story involving a church we were both part of for relatively brief periods in the Chicago suburbs, the Church of the Resurrection. Yes, a prominent Anglican church in North America church. I was there for a couple years I think you were there before me. I was. It was still Episcopalian when I was there. That was before the split. Mm-hmm. And I was I, I was there for less than a year. Yeah, but a prominent Anglican church in the Chicago area. I would say it grew pretty significantly yeah. in the last several years. It has also become the cathedral in the upper Midwest diocese of the Anglican church. So the priest, Stuart Ruck, also serves as the bishop of the diocese. The church has been embroiled in a scandal involving allegations of sexual abuse against a lay minister. The church leaders at Res, where, again, Stuart Ruck is the bishop, did not inform people at Res that these allegations had come to light for about two years. There was also allegations of rape 
against that particular lay minister and allegations of sexual abuse against other minors. So this is all disturbing enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, you know, Religion News Service, to its credit, has done a lot of reporting. Yes, Catherine Post, our reporter, has done a stellar job on a really complicated story with so yes. many layers. Complicated, messy. I will say for our listeners, I try to read everything that there is about this story because, of course, I, f- I, I do feel personally connected to it because I was there for two years and I know people who were there, you know, friends of mine who were there for a lot longer. I have a couple acquaintances who are still at the church. And then on top of the sex abuse allegations and you know whether or not leaders at res kind of mishandled those allegations. Also, there is still, to my knowledge, an investigation underway examining abuses of power. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, to my understanding, though, the results of that investigation will not be made public. Right. And in the meantime, after having been out of public ministry at res for over a year, Stuart Rook has since returned to the church, which I have thoughts and feelings about. <laughs> but maybe which you, which are... you, you, you expressed on Twitter. <laughs> I know that you see me as your like flame emoji Twitter friend, but if you knew how much I was holding back. <laughs> I, I know. I actually do know. That's that's why I decided let's well, do it's... a podcast together. So I, you can... <laughs> <laughs> no, I I enjoy your Twitter personality and I'm sometimes envious of your openness on mm. Twitter. <laughs> well, you and I have slightly different job responsibilities <laughs> yes. and yes. you could not go on Twitter no. and do a flame emoji thread about Res or any church that RNS is reporting on for that matter. No, I could not. So to your point, Roxy, maybe something that you were picking up on was that Stuart Ruck is a charismatic, mm-hmm. yes, big figure. Yes, he he has engendered a following um, of people at the church and beyond who see him as uniquely and divinely anointed and gifted to lead and demonstrate a strong loyalty to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Classic sign. Well, yeah, and I of course I don't think that you shouldn't care for your pastor or admire specific things about them. But I think that it can easily tip over into, we are going to be loyal and faithful to you, our leader, no matter the cost. Mm -hmm. And I'm just not sure that loyalty and faithfulness are not the same. And there might very well be a time when actually faithfulness to God means breaking loyalty to a specific leader. Right. The bishop and his wife have strong beliefs around gender and gender roles and manhood and womanhood. And all of that flows out into teachings around birth control, parenting style, attachment style, women working outside the home. Again, none of this is spiritual abuse per se. I will say though- Micro control, like controlling of, of much more micro aspects of people's lives. Yes. I had a friend summarize it for me recently as non-essentials mm-hmm. in Christian teaching becoming essentials, emphasizing emphasizing elements of human identity and Christian faithfulness that I believe ought to be, in many cases, most of those cases, up to the discernment and discretion of particular families. Right. 
based on their own gifting and sense of calling and just a very strong to be a Christian woman is to look like us and to look like what we teach. Mm -hmm. And that created really strong in-group, out-group dynamics at the church. Oh, and that I've, ex- I've experienced that at churches before. In in what way or how has that played out for you? <laughs> Sorry, I'm just trying to chime in with, I didn't want to derail you. No, no, I, I want to hear. Oh, I just think that idea of like, these are like the, the, like, these are the good kids, you know, doing it right. And then, and, and there was just a strong, like, I'm thinking as I have before of my college church where it was like, we were the remnants, you know, like we were the, the amazing dedicated Christians and the other churches were maybe not as on fire. They were not as, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and it often came down to a lot of these, these kinds of like ways that we were being told to live out our faith that would make us more dedicated on fire Christians. Um, and these other churches were not as they were, they were more milk toast or whatever. Yeah. Not as on fire. Well, yeah, I think this is probably true for any church that sees itself as part of like a renewal movement. But I would say mm. that at Res, there was a strong sense among many people there that this is kind of the epicenter of where God is acting in the world and in Wheaton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As soon as I picked up on that attitude, I was suspicious in part because. Right. Right. I felt that that was just such a wrong understanding of how God works in the world and among churches, because I could point to a dozen other churches in the Wheaton area alone that were doing very good things full of like faithful Christians. And right. it, it, it struck me as spiritual hubris flowing well, from the leaders down yeah. into the congregation. And I have experienced that dynamic in workplaces too, that were also Christian, that where it was like that sense that we are doing the thing God really needs and we're the only ones doing it. And, you know, it, I mean, maybe we were filling a market hole, but I think it, it also lends this idea to people who work there. And I think this is true in churches too, of like, you can't ever leave because this is where it's happening. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it, it, you know, it serves the purpose of keeping people in spiritually abusive, toxic situations because they're like, oh, I don't want to leave. Mm-hmm. this amazing thing that God is doing. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do it anywhere else. And I don't want to be disobedient. I don't want to get off course. And when I ask questions or even express a different view of things or bring in a different perspective, I am seen as being one of the bad kids. Right. What's so hard about these situations, including Mars Hill and the places that I experienced is like there are people having bad experiences there. And then there are people having really positive experiences at these churches. And they would point Mm -hmm. to like, this was the best time of my life. And I felt so close to God and the church was growing and changing the city. And, and it's hard to be able to validate both of those experiences. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is a reason that so many people will say like, but look at the good. Look at all of this good that God was doing despite this, you know, and they might frame it like that. But this is what makes this conversation, I, this is one of the many things that makes this conversation so tricky. Right. And going back to Rez, I don't doubt that many people have had positive experiences there, including people I know. That's right. When people speak of abuses of power there, it's not to say that leaders aren't also capable 
of godly leadership. But it is to say that everybody is a mixed bag. And when there is wrongdoing or harm, that actually needs to be addressed. It's not like the good cancels out the bad. It's that leaders are capable of helping people and harming people. Yeah. And to be clear, I think there are some pastors who have hurt too many people. (laughs) And, you know, like there's, there's, there's not, it's not just always like, ah, they've done some good, they've done some bad, you know, like there's some pastors that should be disqualified from ministry because of the harm that they've done. And I think it's really, well, I, I, I at least wonder about some of these churches like Mars Hill, where maybe a lot of good happened, but I also wonder like, was that good as good as we thought it was? Mm-hmm. I have a feeling our guest today will help us wade into this question. Today's guest is Diane Langberg. Diane is a psychologist with more than 50 years of experience working with trauma survivors. She's the author most recently of Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. I think it's very important not to be the top dog, and I think it's very important not to be on your own. We're meant to be part of a body. We're just a part. We're not the body. And some people in leadership live as if they are not only the body, but the head, too. Our conversation with Diane is coming up just after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. We're in the middle of our annual Newsmatch campaign. As a nonprofit newsroom, RNS journalists depend on your support. To donate now, visit religionnews.com. If you like what we're doing, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. Tweet us. DM us. Reach out to us and share it with your friends. All of this goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. Or send us an email at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary in a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. We are really delighted to be joined today by clinical psychologist and author, most recently of the book, Redeeming Power, Diane Langberg. Hey, Diane. Thanks so much for being with us, Diane. It's a privilege to do so. One of the things that I really appreciate about your work, Diane, is that it seems that you're talking about a topic that is omnipresent, and yet we don't have a lot of resources in the church about, and that is power. When we think about the three temptations of money, sex, and power, the church has a lot on money and sex, arguably, but very few resources on understanding what power is and how to use it rightly and how it's gone wrong. So why do you think that is? Why don't we have more conversations about power? Well, I guess the first thing I would say is I'm in my 70s. I never heard anybody give a sermon on power. I've Mm. certainly heard sermons Mm. on money and sex. Um, so I think we have been blind to its presence in our lives and our misuse of it. And we want, most importantly, to protect our systems. And is that why <laughs> maybe we're not talking about it as much in church contexts? Is because church leaders have a vested interest in 
retaining their power or protecting it or protecting the institution. And if we start unpacking unhealthy uses of power, the whole thing might come tumbling down. Yes, but it's not just church leaders invested in their own power, though they certainly have been. But it is the people who follow them being invested in their power being good, no matter whether it's bad or not, Mm -hmm. because Mm. they want the system they are part of to be okay. They don't want to hear anything bad about it. After all, it's a church. How could it be bad? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that, as you said, like the church is going to, of course, think that um, it's using power rightly because it's using power on behalf of God Um, Mm -hmm. or so everyone in the church thinks. So I guess I'm wondering when you think like about the way that power can be used for good, What are some of the signs that it's being used well? And what are some of the signs that like, oh, red flag, that is an improper abusive use of power? Well, it's being used well when the sheep may safely graze. Mm. And if you look at the terrible things that we've seen in the news and watched in Christendom, not just in the U.S., but around the world in recent years, the sheep have not been safely grazing. Mm -hmm. First of all, they've been grazing on poison in many cases. And second mm-hmm. of all, they haven't been safe while they're grazing. Mm-hmm. And the, the power and the, the interest and we, the value that we give to protecting the system because we say this is God's system. Mm-hmm. So number one, of course it's safe. If you weren't safe, it's because you did something wrong, mm. not because you, you couldn't graze safely. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we don't want to hear anything against it because it gives us things and we want them to still be given. So we protect the system over the person, Mm -hmm. over the sheep. I mean, in your experience, where have you seen that start to get twisted? Like when you're in a church or an institution, I mean, most people go into it thinking that they want to protect sheep, not necessarily an institution or somehow, or protect holiness and not necessarily an institution, but somehow that gets twisted. Where, in your experience, where have you seen that start to become twisted for people or for institutions, where the, the goal becomes more about the institution than the people? Well, you can, if you, if you know to listen for it, which many people do not. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you, if you go into a church, you are a new member and all those kinds of things, you want it to be good. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. supposed to be good. Mm-hmm. And so we don't even look for it. People look for it more now just because of mm-hmm. what's been happening. Right. But they want the church that they've chosen to be a safe place and be good. Mm-hmm. And they look to the leaders to tell them that it is. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think people evaluate uh, leaders the way that they ought to. And so you have a leader who's very charismatic, who brings crowds. Mm-hmm. You have a group that can sing and be loved around the world. You know, you you have leaders that give you good things. Therefore, they are good. Mm. That is often the case. The other piece that gets left out is that what you are looking at is the goodness and grace of God who uses broken people in Mm. ways that are good. So you can see a bad person Hmm. and see some things happen to somebody that are good. Mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm. the grace of God. That is nothing about that person's really a good leader. We attribute it to the leader and protect the system rather than 
the fact that anything good comes out of any church run by sinful humans is rather miraculous in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. But we, we don't see it that way. If it's good, the leader's good. And if the mm-hmm. leader's good, you don't question it. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about spiritual abuse or kind of spiritual power gone wrong. I feel like we hear more and more often about dynamics of spiritual abuse in unhealthy churches or ministries. How would you define spiritual abuse? (laughs) One of the things that I've heard come up recently is it's not abuse if the person didn't intend it to be abusive. So if that leader was just (laughs) I mean, let's 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 go with it for a second. <laughs> if if the leader was simply trying to, you know, follow scriptural teaching or discipline somebody or speak truth into their life, well, that's what it was. And if the person received it as being abusive, then they're oversensitive or don't they're not recipient they're not receptive to discipline or the word or something. So what is spiritual abuse and Mm. what do you think of this uh, rationale? Well, it it is a spiritual abuse is the use of something spiritual, which ends up doing harm. Sometimes it's on purpose to do harm. And sometimes it's not on purpose at the beginning, but so you can have uh, spiritual power in a position. You know, if you're a head pastor or a youth leader or a bishop or whatever else, you have power, whether you want to know it or not, like it or not, or use it or not, you've got it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just by virtue of the position that you have, spiritual knowledge is a form of power. Mm. You know, somebody who has a theological degree, somebody who has a doctorate, somebody Mm. who's written a lot of books, the knowledge is accorded a spiritual uh, quality and therefore is not very often checked in any way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and words, people use spiritual words in order to manage other people or convince them that what they're doing, which is awful, is good. Mm-hmm. And so there are qualities that have a spiritual component that are used in ways that harm sheep. Mm-hmm. And that are ultimately about controlling other people. Is that kind of the core element? Yes, and feeding the person with the power. I get something from using spiritual language or using my spiritual authority. I'm the good guy. I'm the one mm-hmm. who knows God more than anybody else. I'm the one who made this church get big. I'm the mm-hmm. one who, whatever you want, uh, I'm the one with the reputation. Mm-hmm. What would you do without me? This place would fall down. Whew. Some yeah. smoke is coming off my <laughs> my laptop. <laughs> yeah, the temptation is for all of us to use whatever we, power we have to stroke our own egos and feed our, yes. our self-image, whatever we need to believe about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And pastors and theologians are just as tempted by that as anybody else. Yes, they are. And put in a position to, to wield it. That only encourages that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I am encouraged by how much these conversations are happening now, and I hope they're happening more and more often in seminaries, like as pastors are being mm. trained, because I think we, you know, I, I truly have seen a lot of people come into the pulpit in a, in a like very vulnerable to that kind of temptation. Mm-hmm. 
and mm-hmm. not prepared at all for what it means to have that kind of power over people. Are you seeing more people starting to talk about this at seminaries in training? Like when, when we're thinking about the role of pastor, are more people really reckoning with this now? Well, I, I think, first of all, if 10 of them did it, it would be more. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how big the more is. Yeah. But yes, I do see it happening. I mean, I, I hear from professors who use the book on power in classes mm-hmm. and seminaries and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's wonderful. And I'm glad but it has to go beyond that. Because denominations are different. People mm-hmm. are also leaders in not denominations. Right. There's no the, other net. The don't go know? to seminary. <laughs> Yeah. They haven't been to seminary, and there's no other net in terms of if they do something. There's no mm-hmm. body over them. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot to be seen and understood and done mm-hmm. for any radical change, I think, to happen in the church. Mm-hmm. I hope and prayer that it will, and I think God's poking at us to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's very important not to be the top dog, and I think it's very important not to be on your own. We're meant to be part of a body. We're just a part. We're not the mm-hmm. body. Mm-hmm. And s- some people in leadership live as if they are not only the body, but the head too, mm-hmm. which they're not. And so mm-hmm. there's there's a lack of understanding for the great need of humility and light shining on our lives and people around us who will have the nerve to say something to us when it needs to be said. We've lost a lot of that, I think. And it's about how much you produce and how known you mm-hmm. are and how big the crowd is, and mm-hmm. none of which is fruit of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. I write about this in my book on celebrity, the the fixation on numerical growth at all costs. And gosh, you can have <laughs> get cancer grows, right? Like some something can grow in a in a destructive way. Sure. <laughs> there, it's it's far too simplistic to say our church is growing and therefore God is blessing us and we're on the right path. And that goes. Mm-hmm. The Nazis grew true. Mm-hmm. They grew. <laughs> it was not a good thing. Diane, you have written critically about the use of NDAs or non-disclosure agreements in churches, and I can kind of guess why you've written so critically about them, but how how are they part of this whole conversation about unhealthy power in spiritual communities, and why are they so damaging? Why are you so critical of them? Well, I've been doing what I do for 50 years. It has largely been with um, victims of some kind of abuse, whether it was as a child or an adult, whether it was a church or a person, whatever. And I have never had anybody tell me about an NDA that turned out to be a good thing. Right. First of all, it's non-disclosure. So if you think about that in terms of who we're supposed to be in Christ, I mean, to disclose means to reveal. So it means don't reveal. Mm -hmm. Allow something to be covered that should be seen. Mm-hmm. I, just when you look at the scriptures, that's if somebody has done something sinful and it's exposed, that is for their good, not for their evil. Mm-hmm. And if you say to a little lamb who has been abused by someone in power that they can't tell about that or they'll damage the church, first of all, that's a lie. And second of all, it's crushing of a human being. Mm-hmm. We're to be the people of truth and the people of light. We are to disclose here in myself first. 
mm-hmm. but also in other things. And our God is a God of justice and a God of truth. And we say, don't talk about those things. And it strikes me that it puts it puts such, as you said, Dan, oh, such a burden on victims of terrible things to have to carry this, you know, potentially mm-hmm. for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. The the person who abused their power can kind of move on with this protection of silence. Yes. But the victim then has to carry what happened to them and just how so wrong that is to do to anybody beyond the abuse. Then also the, the request or the demand. It's another kind of abuse. Right. I think a lot of us, you know, I'm speaking for myself, but I, I think this is, has been true for a lot of people where we found ourselves in unhealthy church cultures or in unhealthy workplace cultures, places where we're seeing power abused. And, you know, like I'm thinking of a place that I worked where I had some measure of leadership within a culture that felt very unhealthy and abusive. And I think it's a struggle to know what to do in that situation. And I feel like that's a common situation to be in. Like, do you stand up and try to reform from within? Do you leave? You're always at your own at risk how do you counsel people who kind of find themselves in that situation where they are within a system that's unhealthy and could maybe do something about it or maybe leave? Well, in some ways, it is a very individual decision because it depends on what's happening. Mm-hmm. If you have anything to do with a child going on, that's mandated in terms mm-hmm. of reporting. Right. So it doesn't right. really matter right. whether you want to talk to the leaders or anything else. You have to report what's happening as far as I'm concerned. So I think there are categories for things. I also think that when I work with individuals uh, and they're struggling with the church and whether they should speak up or whether they should leave and all of that, part of it also depends on the strength in the one who's been observing and watching what's happening and wants to say something about it. So if you have somebody who has a long history of abuse and who's very vulnerable, I might say something to them. And then you have somebody else who doesn't have that history and uh, has uh, strength and other people that would surround them and help them with that. Go for it. Speak truth and see what happens. Mm -hmm. But I can't say people should do this because the person has to be considered and the potential harm to them of exposing. Right. They might just need to leave for their own sake or for someone in their family's sake or something like that. You know, your leaving says something, whether people understand it or not, it still says something. Mm. That's not silence. Mm-hmm. Staying and pretending everything is wrong, I have much more trouble with because right. that not only allows it to continue, but you're doing something of harm to yourself when you do that. Mm. It's hard because, and I'm, I'm not disagreeing with anything that you're saying, Diane, I'm just thinking back to a workplace culture. I don't, it was not abusive per se, but there was inappropriate behavior among a couple leaders and being, having observed it, it was hard to get a grasp on what was actually going on because there was a narrative internally that he's of a different generation or it's kind of this. (laughs) (laughs) She laughs. You you laugh. That will work before the throne of God. (laughs) I'm a baby. Boomer. I can't help myself. Um, I won't wash. You know, like, and because I, I mean, I was young and I was starting out in my career. And so I can have grace on myself for like not knowing any better. But I do look back and wonder, yeah, but like 
Maybe mm-hmm. I should have said more, you know, or maybe I should mm-hmm. have addressed it more directly. And I think a lot of people who have come out of unhealthy churches or workplace cultures look back and ask, did I do enough? Did I make the right decision? Should I have said more? Should I have left sooner? Like, actually, should I have gotten out of there because it was detrimental to be there? So it can be hard to grasp the truth when you're in it and you feel like your livelihood and sense of purpose and calling is wrapped up in it. Not to mention your safety. Mm -hmm. Which is part of the abusive situation. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. But I would also say that what you see when you look back is seen by a different person mm-hmm. than the one who was in the system. Uh, First of all, you're older. That's, <laughs> you know more yeah. things and you have hindsight. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you don't have things like money or whatever, depending on all of that. Right. Well, here's here's a question for you that I, I think about this a lot. And I'm wondering how we sort of trouble this narrative that I think is really common. And I and I think it's very well embodied in the way we talk about Steve Jobs. You know, we talk about him as the genius. And by all accounts, he was not a great boss and not a great person in terms of leadership. And it was a pretty abusive culture. But everybody talks about that as well. Like that was necessary for his genius. That was necessary for the innovation, the creativity. And I'm wondering how you respond to that kind of narrative, because I think it's really common and we see it a lot. Hollywood plays it out all the time with like the evil boss that everybody's just like, well, that's just how he is. And that's how this company grew so much. So how do you respond to that to that narrative? Well, my first thought, which is usually my first thought, is to go back to Christ. He was full of power. He wasn't anything like that. It isn't required. He would have failed Mm -hmm. if it were required. Part of what people are doing in those places is backing up from something they're afraid to talk about. Mm. They'll lose their job. Right. Or they'll make a lot of enemies because people don't want to think about it or something. And Mm -hmm. so they protect themselves and they, they make excuses for it. I mean, families make excuses for an alcoholic. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. we, Churches make excuses for leadership and companies make excuses for the brains behind them. It's like whatever myth you have to tell yourself for the system to keep going and to survive. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you pay the price. You pay mm. the price. But when, when people start talking like that, I think, it, it, you know, you need to stop and say, OK, what does the life of Christ tell me about this? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing your perspectives and story. Diane, I think our our listeners will really appreciate hearing from you. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, it was great to have you on. And it was an honor to talk to you. Thank you. You're welcome. Saves by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.